how one South Florida school district is reviewing classroom books, a renewed focus on bicycle safety in South Florida, and storm season starts with, well, a storm. This is the South Florida Roundup on WLRN. I'm Tom Hudson. Educators in Palm Beach County are being told to review books in their classrooms for references to racism, sexism, and other issues. It's part of an effort to comply with new Florida laws limiting how identity and discrimination are addressed in the classroom. And then, the death of two bicyclists last month after being hit by a car on the Rickenbacker Causeway has brought pledges for new safety measures. How can South Florida streets be made safer for bikers, joggers, and walkers? Plus, hurricane season only a few days old and already we're under a tropical storm warning. It's all ahead, made possible by Willie the Bee Man, bee removal specialist. Welcome to the South Florida Roundup on WLRN. I'm Tom Hudson. Thanks for listening and supporting public broadcasting here in South Florida. On the last day of classes this year, the school district of Palm Beach County issued a message to teachers for the next school year. The message was about school books. The teachers were told that all textbooks and instructional materials available to students have to be reviewed for compliance with new state laws, including the Individual Freedom Bill and the Parents' Rights in Education Bill. The questionnaire was provided to Palm Beach County teachers who may be unsure if books in their classroom aren't following the new laws. According to the questionnaire, books that promote certain beliefs or explicitly instruct on sexual orientation or gender identity are up for review. Aurora Dominguez is a teacher at Boca Raton High School. I, in all honesty, feel that could be scary in the sense that I feel like there should be a certain freedom and we should allow students to get excited about reading. And getting excited about reading can be tough, you know, because it's, you know, when you're young, you're exposed to a lot of different uh, pieces of literature But at the same time, you want to find what you enjoy. Um, And a lot of times kids find what they enjoy through their teachers. And that's how we create reading habits. So I feel like there should be diversity in the classroom library. So let's talk about this here at the end of this school year in anticipation of the beginning of the next school year. Teachers, what does all this mean for your lesson plans? What does it mean for your summer planning? How do you review your classroom materials? What might future students miss out on? What kind of materials should be avoided in the classroom? And parents, share your thoughts on this matter. Students, we'd love to hear from you as well if you're out of school already. How do you feel about the books you have available in your classrooms and school libraries perhaps being restricted? 800-743-WLRN. 800-743-9576 to join our conversation live on this Friday. You can also hit us up on social media. Look for us on Twitter. Our handle is at WLRN. WLRN's education reporter Kate Payne is on this story and is reporting it out. Kate, thanks for joining us here on the Roundup. What are Palm Beach County public school teachers being asked to do exactly? So they're being asked to go through all of the books in their classroom libraries to see if they're in violation of these new state laws, which again have to do with how sexual orientation and gender identity are addressed in schools and also issues like race and and discrimination. And so the district has issued this questionnaire um, for teachers to go through and go question by question, you know, do their books 
um, are, are they flagged under under these questions? And again, this this guidance has to do with classroom libraries. Um, so this is separate from textbooks, from library books. There are other review processes that are already in place um, for those materials. Uh, but some of the questions um, in this classroom library checklist, uh, you know, have to do with is the book from the 1619 project or does it reference the 1619 project? That was a project um, from The New York Times about a year and a half couple years or so ago. Sure, yeah. sure. Um, and another question being, you know, does the book promote or encourage a student to believe that people are racist, sexist, or oppressive, whether consciously or unconsciously? Um, and so if, if teachers answer yes or unsure to any of these questions, they're supposed to give the books over to a media specialist for further review. Dig a little deeper into the, the just even these questions. Uh, how is how how are teachers uh, being guided to make the assessment of whether or not a book or material compels, encourages, or promotes a student to believe, uh, for instance, that people are racist? What, what's what's the guidance given for how teachers are to review their own material? You know, apart from um, this checklist that they've issued. I'm not sure what other guidance teachers are getting. Teachers mm. have a lot of questions about this. Um, so much of it seems to come down to their own interpretation of, of you know, whether a book, you know, compels you know, people to believe that um, students to believe that people are, are racist, for instance. Um, I, I think. Well, for we instance, how, how would you sorry for the interruption, Kate, but on this sure. point, I, I just stay for a moment here. Right. Mm. I, I, how does one, for instance, review a history book? to discuss the Civil War in the United States that uh, that somehow discusses the Civil War in historical accuracy without promoting, compelling, or encouraging a student to believe, quoting from this questionnaire, one or mm -hmm. more of the following, including people are racist, consciously or a, unconsciously. Mm -hmm. Yes, and that is a critical question for educators that I've spoken with who are history teachers, who are trying to help their students reckon with some of the darkest periods in our country's history and mm -hmm. European history um, is how do we talk about things like slavery, things like racial segregation, um, if you know those books are flagged under guidance like this. Um, and you know uh, I spoke with a, a few school board members in the district about this and one said they believe that there's a difference between books stating the facts of history versus books that take on a particular ide ideology. Um, but so much of that, you know, I'm sure lawyers would say can be up for interpretation um, for, for parents or, or for members of the public who want to take issue with, say, history books. We'd love to hear from teachers here as we're live on this Friday, parents, uh, retired teachers, educators, uh, students, uh, same phone number for everybody. We'd love to hear from you. Uh, it is 800-743-9576, 800-743-9576. Talking about the, uh, uh, the communication sent out on the last day of classes in Palm Beach County, the public school district, uh, having teachers review books and classroom instructional materials uh, so that they uh, comply with new state laws, including the Individual Freedom Bill and the Parental Rights in Education Bill. So what do we know, Kate? What have you learned about the review process? There's this questionnaire that you're reporting on. Um, and then what happens? 
Well, uh, school board members told me they're not really clear at this point what that further review process will look like, what the metrics will be, who will be doing the review. Um, one board member told me there may be a committee made up of staff, of, of members of the community, members of the public who will review um, these books that are, are flagged under this guidance. Um, but the district so far has not gotten legal guidelines from the State Department of Education about how to comply with these new state laws, which the district says it, it's desperate to have, um, you know, more, more guidance on, on how to interpret these laws. Um, and at least for House Bill 1557, the parental rights and education law, it's actually written into the language of the law that DOE doesn't have to provide guidance until June of 2023, so a whole another school year mm. before they could potentially get that guidance. Um, but my understanding from school board members is that um, although they don't know exactly what the review process will be like, books that are flagged under this guidance, um, you know, if, if teachers say yes or, or unsure in response to these questions, those books are to be removed from classrooms while this review plays out, whatever that review ends up looking like. So, uh, yeah, okay. Uh, and, and then what about for books that teachers who are doing this kind of self-review don't flag? Uh, are, are, those, are those decisions then going to be reviewed? Are those are those materials through the process and uh, and and uh, no one other than the teacher or the uh, classroom instructor reviews? That's my understanding. You know, um, you know, as, as far as books that are not flagged under this process, uh, mm -hmm. the guidance says no further action is needed. Um, I, I did pose this question to to school board members. You know, what if teachers don't comply? with this guidance, yeah. which at least one teacher tells me they don't plan to, <laughs> um, it's it's not clear. You know, this is a lot of, of extra work, certainly for teachers yeah. and for media specialists um, at, at the least. And do you know where the questionnaire came from that was distributed to Palm Beach County uh, public school teachers? So my understanding is that this is coming from the superintendent and his administration, uh, that they developed this questionnaire um, Lots of the language is drawn from the new state laws themselves, mm -hmm. if not word for word, um, quite similar language to the state laws. Um, but it's, you know, a sense from the district that they feel under pressure to be in compliance with these new state laws that go into effect July 1st. We're speaking about uh, state laws requiring review of uh, public school textbooks and classroom instructional materials with WLRN education reporter Kate Payne. Your phone calls, comments, thoughts, concerns, 800-743-9576, 800-743-WLRN. Leslie is listening in and calling. Go ahead, Leslie, you're on the radio. Yes, hi there. I am so impressed with all of the information that you all are sharing. And I guess I pose this question. Um, in that this seems to be such a random piece of who can decide what is correct and what is not, by the measures that these um, wonderful teachers are having to take to perhaps pull something off the bookshelf or out of their little reading nooks, um, what about the basic Constitution with regard to the fact that without the amendments, or with the amendments, pardon me, we're probably guiding people towards the recognition that we are racist and that we have been racist in the past? Am I making sense in, in that the amendments are showing that we have changed? 
the, the, the amendments to the Constitution you're referring to. Correct. Correct. So so by that, it's it could be teaching people that, oh, my gosh, we're not all that we think we are. Hmm. Yeah, uh, it's certainly some vague areas there, Leslie. And, and Kate, you, you mentioned some of those and of your sources have mentioned uh, the language here, which is important, right? The language of the questionnaire talks about uh, promoting ideas or encouraging students mm-hmm. to to think one way or another as opposed to presenting facts. Yeah, and, and that's something that's come up in conversations with educators and, and with school board members of saying, you know, their job is not to indoctrinate students. Their job is to help students um, learn the facts and to make up their own minds and to give them the tools, the critical thinking abilities um, to analyze things like primary documents like the Constitution mm-hmm. um, and and uh, the Bill of Rights, et cetera. Um, but it's because of, of the language of uh, of this law, of this guidance, you know, I, I really can see so much of it coming down to individual interpretation. Yeah, what are the limits of language uh, about promoting, compelling, and encouraging a student to believe uh, one thing or another? Uh, in Miami, Lawrence is listening and calling. Go ahead, Lawrence, you're on the radio. Hey, excellent conversation, as always. And, you know, uh, banning books is a horrible thing in, in general. And, uh, uh, you know, My wife and and daughter are both teachers, and and my daughter's building a library, and my wife has one, a substantial one. And before COVID, I said, you should bring that home. It's very valuable. And she said, no, the kids need it. We don't have these things in the classroom or access to a library because it was under construction at the time. And now as we go through it, there's number one, there's a, we don't know what all, we all don't speak the same words. We don't know what the same words are. Uh, Second of all, they're teaching very young grades, like second and third grade. So, like, concepts that, that are being discussed, they're foreign there, you know? They're, they're oftentimes things that we just say, you should talk to your mom or dad about, just we always did, or that's what I was instructed. Mm-hmm. So, so as we move forward and try and catch up for whatever the right or wrongs are, will there be anything left to look at or study? Or, like, other people make a bigger statement, is this like another nail in public education? Because in other places, you could teach whatever you want in religious schools and yeah. private schools and charter schools. Is this just like saying, you know, busting is bad and that uh, equal, separate but equal is okay? And, and just kind of let's just acknowledge that the end is near. Because in any other place where people were scared of being being uh, the victims of, of of crime or like we've seen these mass shootings, you know, to me, that's just another nail in the coffin yeah. of, and that's a terrible way to put it, of public education. Yeah. And they've gotten so angry, they're willing to take their guns out. So that's, I guess that's my two cents. Lawrence, I, I, yeah, I, I, a lot in there here. Let me unpack one part of that that I think you're trying mm-hmm. to, to say. It just, you know, Lawrence uh, shared with us, Kate, that his uh, wife and daughter our teachers uh, and and the teachers sources that you've been able to connect with. How, how do these kinds of messages, this kind of guidance, this kind of work, uh, how how are they? How is it affecting their, frankly, professional retention? Uh, let alone an encouragement of uh, of new professional teachers into the work of public school teaching. Sure, I mean it's it's one of a number of pressures that. Um, 
we've seen are, are forcing teachers out of the classroom, um, many of them early, retiring early, or, or um, you know, we've heard accounts of, of, you know, students not wanting to become a teacher, you right. know, changing their mind professionally. But um, to, to the caller's point, building these classroom libraries is a passion project for, for some educators, you know, in wanting to instill a love of reading in their students and make those books available in their classroom. And for some, they do make a point of bringing in books that center on people of color, that center on LGBTQ characters, because they see it as, as vital to help their kids see themselves in literature and, and in the world. Um, and this really goes to the heart of, of that work. Yeah, let me them. bring in uh, one more caller here, Kate. Vanessa listening in, in Miami. Thanks for calling, Vanessa. You're on the radio. Hi. I just wanted to say I think that if the state wants to implement these laws, that they should spend their effort and their time and their money making a list of books and distributing that. Not that I, I don't agree with this at all, but... I think that they should spend their <laughs> yeah. time and well, money uh, arguably, doing that, not use the teachers. Yeah, understood, Vanessa. I th- I, I kind of hear hear a little bit of that uh, sarcasm, perhaps. But right, I mean, to some degree, this is these are state resources, right? The state dollars and local dollars that go to pay for teachers; uh, those resources are being expended in this case, Kate Payne, right? Sure. Um, but to, to the caller's point, you know, it is at the least, it's, it's a lot more work for yeah. classroom teachers, for media specialists, and not every school has a media specialist is, is part of um, one of the, the issues that's coming up and um, the, the work in reviewing books and, and instructional materials. Not every school has a certified trained um, person to, to be making some of these assessments and yeah. decisions. I saw one more caller here in Sunrise. Uh, Ricardo, thanks for holding on and uh, calling in. You're on the radio. Hello. Thank you for taking my call. Um, I'm, I'm a, I just finished my first year at law school. I, 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 was, I went through the public school system in Broward County. I feel like right now where our country's kind of heading is that we're probably allowing too much power to the parents to kind of restrict certain books and whatnot and it, it, at some point we have to leave that to educators who have spent their lives studying these materials and taking all these you know certifications mm. to be able to teach it to students so it's like at what point are we going to keep allowing parents to you know invoke and express their rights but we're restricting the educators who have been trained to teach students and their fear of vilifying some minority or demographic i just think it's we just keep tying the hands behind teachers and putting so much weight on them, and they're also not being compensated enough to deal with this red tape and everything that we put them through. Ricardo, thanks for adding your voice there from Sunrise. Kate Payne, uh, uh, how about that? how this is uh, striking teachers, particularly your sources, about this balance of, uh, uh, in this political environment, parental rights in public education and the ability of professionals, uh, professional educators, to make certain decisions? Mm-hmm. So one of the points that sources will make to me, um, librarians as well, is, you know, that parents and families should have the right to choose what is best for their children. And so for that, in that way, they mean, you know, having the plethora of choices, you know, mm-hmm. yeah. certainly in, in library settings, librarians are not forcing books on, on children, but they're making them available. And families can always make those individual decisions. Is this best for my child now? 
um, but to ensure that those choices are available to all families. WLRN's education reporter, Kate Payne. Kate, you're still working this story and more to come, right? That's right. Yeah. Uh, and if uh, if you are unable to call in uh, now here to join our conversation, you can still chime in. Visit WLRN on Twitter. Also look for our Instagram story on this issue. And we'd love to hear your feedback again on social media at WLRN on Twitter and Instagram. WLRN's education reporter Kate Payne here joining us on the South Florida Roundup. Thanks, Kate. Thank you. Still to come, some new promises and actions to better protect bicyclists from South Florida traffic. We'd love to hear from you cyclists now. Call now, 800-743-WLRN, 800-743-9576. Welcome back to the South Florida Roundup here on WLRN. Thanks again for listening. I'm Tom Hudson. The death of two cyclists last month on Virginia Key have brought new efforts to protect bikers from traffic on the Rickenbacker Causeway. It's been a deadly year for cyclists in South Florida. 16 have died in crashes, according to state data. That number does not include the two who died May 15th when they were hit and killed when a Jeep hit them as they began the climb across the bridge connecting Virginia Key to the mainland. Another 89 pedestrians throughout the region have died in crashes this year as well. The deadly bike crash last month has led to more police patrols, slower speed limits, uh, temporary barriers, and the effort to protect cyclists from traffic heading to and from Key Biscayne. Now, if you're a biker, we'd love to hear from you. How safe do you feel on the streets of South Florida? Maybe you don't bike to Key Biscayne, but where you do bike, how safe do you feel? What changes would make it safer? And for drivers, what do you think of efforts to better protect bikers and pedestrians? 800-743-WLRN is our phone number. 800-743-9576. Miami-Dade County Mayor Daniela Levine-Cava is with us now. Madam Mayor, welcome back to WLRN. Thanks for your time. Thank you so much, Tom. Glad to be with you. The county's transportation department has installed some temporary barriers at a few points along those bike lanes between the mainland and Key Biscayne. Will those become permanent? So, Tom, we put in place a few things on an urgent basis, and for the last couple of weekends, they've proven to be very successful. So, in addition to these temporary barriers, we've had more law enforcement out, Mm -hmm. not only issuing tickets, but providing education, and we've posted a number of signs, we uh, warning signs that there are bicyclists ahead, as well as reducing the speed limit in a couple of, of the most dangerous spots. So, those are all measures that are in place as we develop some longer term, I would say midterm and longer term measures. I put forward a $250,000 budget that's at my discretion Mm -hmm. for uh, things that we could change uh, within that budget. We could uh, add some uh, painting. We could take some lanes possibly out of circulation, narrowing uh, for cars and increasing for bikes. We... uh, uh, are looking at having uh, escorts for some of the large groups, the Peloton, mm-hmm. uh, during set hours so that they can safely cross and not uh, interfere with hmm. the car traffic. Um, other suggestions include closing off the U-turn lane um, on the causeway with Jersey barriers. Uh, and um, basically we identified the areas of greatest conflict between cars and bicyclists and pedestrians, Mm -hmm. and we're making sure that in the short term we protect lives, and in the midterm we put up um, whatever we can to, to make sure that people can cross. 
Mayor, let me ask about some of the thinking around some more permanent solutions. You mentioned the temporary solutions. Let's talk about the lowering of the speed limit from 45 miles an hour to 35 miles an hour in some areas. How are you thinking about potentially trying to make that, or are you trying to uh, think about making that more of a permanent uh, uh, permanent rule? Yeah, I think this is an opportunity for us to see the effects of these measures. Uh, They are all temporary at this time. And, and we can not only see how well-protected people are, but also the public reaction. Mm-hmm. Uh, we know some people are in a hurry. Uh, we know that this is a major route uh, back and forth to Kibiskane, but it is also a major recreational amenity and uh, a parkway. For, for par- it's a park for people to enjoy yep. and recreate. So we have to balance those interests. And what about the... the- use of jersey barriers these are concrete physical separation between bicyclists or pedestrians and traffic not the plastic pylons or armadillo mounds that can be put onto uh, uh onto pavement yeah all of that is under review and uh, we know for some of the very fast cyclists they don't like those kinds of barriers because they prevent them from let's say, passing slower bicyclists or pedestrians. Um, But then again, in this case, we're talking about a major roadway. This is not uh, a casual street. This is a major, major thoroughfare. So we have to really try to balance all those interests, and we will continue to get public input. We did have a workshop a few nights ago, Mm -hmm. very successful, with a lot of perspectives represented. Uh, We went through the, the, the causeway segment by segment. and came up with very particular recommendations. The county has a Vision Zero plan. This is an effort to eliminate traffic deaths. Uh, Does that include, is that the entire county, every every street, every interchange, every Mm -hmm. road? So Vision Zero is to eliminate pedestrian uh, and and bicycle, well, all fatalities on the roadways. And so that is our, our goal. But we know we can't just say it. We have to make changes. And so 50 high uh, danger spots were identified, Key Biscayne and the Causeway not even being one of the top of the 50. Mm-hmm. Nonetheless, we are prioritizing uh, Key Biscayne because it is such an important amenity. So uh, we are investing dollars in improving those intersections. Uh, and that could be everything from the timing of lights, the placement of barriers, uh, additional uh, signals and, and signs. Uh, many, many different features, and those are all under review. There's a $15 million uh, item in the county budget for bicycle safety. And as you look across the county wide, right, the Key Biscayne and, and the Rickenbacker is certainly a high profile area for bicyclists and, it, and a historically tragic one, as yeah. we learned again uh, in the middle of, of last month. But, of course, there are bicyclists and pedestrians all across the county. What, what are the priorities for that $15 million in the budget for bicycle mm-hmm. safety? Mm-hmm. So, again, we do have these 50 intersections that mm-hmm. we've identified for Vision Zero. But as far as cycling uh, specifically, we have a critical need to protect our cyclists and, and pedestrians. So For so long, roads have been considered... Uh, the the main uh, purview of cars. But we know that mobility involves much more than cars, and we have to be building in a way that accommodates these different modes. So we have four pillars as we design our uh, infrastructure plan. 
that streets are for people, that we improve transit, that we innovate and build sustain for the future sustainably, and that we do it in an equitable way that provides uh, access for all. So we're going to be using those pillars to design the plan for how to best deploy those dollars. And $15 million is not adequate to do everything we need to do. Uh, Madam Mayor, just real quick, and our apologies for the interruption, but in our final moments here, you mentioned the the 50 intersections that have been identified by this Vision Zero. Is there a have those been are they concentrated in any kind of geographic area? Yeah, uh, no. Uh, we can certainly provide a map for your listenership, and uh, just a quick point: almost half of the fatal and serious injuries occur on the major roads, which are only ten percent of the roads. Mm-hmm. So the 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 more heavily trafficked roads are the ones where the vast majority yeah. of the accidents are occurring. Yeah, if you could have your office share that map with us, we'll be sure to distribute that on online and uh, on our social media. Uh, Madam Mayor, thanks for your time today. Nice to catch up. Always. Thank you, Tom. Mayor Daniela Levine-Cava here with us on the South Florida Roundup. Julio has been listening in in Miami. Julio, go ahead. You're on the radio. Yes. Uh, greetings to uh, everyone over there at WLRN. Uh, and I just wanted to say that Sometimes I feel like what uh, tends to make the roads a little bit dangerous for uh, riders sometimes is the fact that in South Florida we have a constant influx of uh, new residents that come from countries Mm -hmm. that do not have the same culture when it comes to uh, respect for pedestrians. So that was my comment for today. Yeah, Julio, I appreciate that perspective. Stay safe out there. Robert listening in in Lauder Hill. We know that uh, biking and pedestrian safety is a South Florida concern, not just focused on Dade County and certainly not just focused on the Rickenbacker. Go ahead, Robert. You're on the radio. Well, I I also ride a a bicycle, but I do not ride a bicycle in the street. In reality, the biking is in the street. I ride my bike on the sidewalk. Because if you listen to the news every single day, uh, people are being killed riding bike in the street. To me, the bike lane should be on the other side of the sidewalk, not in the street. Yeah, you want a physical barrier there, protection from vehicular traffic. Robert, uh, yeah, well, yeah, yeah, like that, the bike lane should be on the other side of the sidewalk, not in the street. Yeah. The bike lane, in the reality, is the street. You couldn't give me a million dollars to ride a bike in the street. <laughs> I hear you, Robert. Yeah, yeah, real passion there, Robert from Lauder Hill. And as a, as, a, as a slow bicyclist in South Florida, I share your location there where I stick to the sidewalk as well. Let's continue this conversation with Michael Davey, the mayor of Key Biscayne. Mayor Davey, are you with us? Yes, sir. Oh, terrific. Thanks for being patient with us. Uh, you heard the mayor sure. there, uh, Mayor of Miami-Dade County, talk about her priorities and the temporary responses and the discussion around more permanent solutions uh, to uh, to the Rickenbacker and the, and, the, and the road through Virginia Key and on to Key Biscayne, of course, where you're mayor. What are your priorities for uh, pedestrian and, and uh, bicycle safety? Well, I, look, I think we share uh, many of the same concerns uh, by, you know, safety of, of recreational users, as well as, as those who have to use the, the causeway to get to and from their homes. Uh, we want to do the most we can to uh, to protect everyone. And I, I appreciate the, the county's efforts um, in terms of enforcement, which is both against vehicle, vehicular traffic, as well as um, those cyclists who, who don't understand that the traffic laws also apply to them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, indeed. What about the, the the speed limit? I know I would suspect some uh, some of your constituents there uh, being told that they have to slow down to 35 miles an hour going to and from uh, their homes uh, may ruffle some feathers. 
Yeah, I, I mean, look, I, I, I've been, the mayor and I have spoken about this previously. Um, it is our position that, that speed has not been a factor in these tragedies. Mm-hmm. That's not to say mm-hmm. that temporarily while we're looking for, um, you know, in the short term, while we're trying to get the barriers in place and we're trying to do more, I certainly understand the need to maybe reduce the speeds for this period of time. Uh, but once we do put those more permanent barriers in place, I would like to see the speed limits uh, return to uh, their original levels. So you 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 uh, you first like to see the uh, barriers be permanent, correct, and, and then uh, return to the forty five mile an hour speed limit. That's right. Uh, Mayor Daniela Levine-Cava mentioned um, uh, a kind of community conversation that was held this week, uh, really sparked by the tragic deaths of the two cyclists in May and a, a renewed conversation about bicycle and pedestrian safety when it comes to the Rickenbacker. Uh, there has been floated and rejected a, a, a private plan for kind of a comprehensive master plan for the Rickenbacker and the Causeway. What are your hopes uh, as as the as a as a community leader, as the bicyclist community, as uh, transportation experts are spending the time? And you know what the mayor said uh, sounds like there's an appetite to spend some money. No, and, and that's exactly what what we're looking for is long term. We we do want to do. I, I, we would like to see a master plan for the entire uh, causeway, uh, from from the toll booths all the way out to the the municipal boundaries of our village. Um, it's important, you know. It is a, a it's a critical causeway highway for our people, but it is you know it it does lead to two of the biggest recreational areas in Miami Dade County. Um, so we would like to see. And I, I, you made a point about. Um, the, the private plan was mm-hmm. killed. Just the process was stopped on that. I want to be clear. We, okay. we are certainly interested. I think uh, Bernard Siskovich's plan has some very useful uh, parts to it. There are parts, you know, we wouldn't necessarily agree with, but but, but it's it's a good basis. And I think we should be looking at it as we move forward. And, and you know, I am very pleased with the efforts of Mayor Cava and our, our commissioner, Commissioner Regalado, um, in this regard, to, to move this forward, to make this roadway, this causeway better for everybody who, who uses it. The, the plan is referred to as the Plan Z. I think that's what uh, it's, uh, Z it, plan, it's been. Correct. Yeah, the Z yeah, plan. plan. Yeah. Well, it, it, regarding yeah. pedestrian and uh, and bicycle uh, safety, what parts of that uh, do you see from that Z plan that you'd like to bring back into the conversation and the process? Well, I think the separation is critical. That, that's what we really need to be looking at. Is separating and let's be clear about that, right, Mary? Do you mean physically, yes. like the Jersey Berry kind of separation, or do you mean plastic poles or armadillo hills or bumps? What, what I would you, like to see more a more permanent look. What happened? What happened? The um, you know the tragedy that 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 killed those two people about a week and a half ago, almost two weeks ago now. Um, you know that was there was no separation there. Um, and what I'd like to see is something more permanent than the armadillos or the or the uh, you know those those plastic um, dividers you have on the expressway. Right. Um, I think I think a more a more permanent structure can be done. Again, that's a long term plan. And, I think we've we've all got to sit down, all the stakeholders, and there's a lot of us. One other question here, Mayor: Would you support uh, any kind of change to uh, a toll to pay for some of these safety measures? Well, I think we're going to have to realistically, we're all going to have to understand that any any work that has to be done on the causeway is going to <laughs> incur costs and sure. we're going to have to pay for it. So, yes, I think the tolls are going to have to be uh, looked at. Um, but again, this 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 causeway, not only is it our home, but it's also a way for the rest of the residents of this county to access 
as I said, two of our best beaches. Sure. You know, you've got Cranon Park sure. and you've got the state park at the end of our island at Cape Florida. And so you you want to be mindful that this is a way for people to recreate and we don't want to dissuade people from coming out by making the tolls too high. So we, we, we do have to bear that in mind as well. That begs a lot of questions about what's too high, right, Mr. Mayor? <laughs> uh, yes. That, yeah. It, it, it's, devil's it's, in the details. It's, it's how much and when if you're willing to put right. tolls on the table. And it sounds like uh, certainly you are willing to do that today. Uh, Mr. Mayor, thanks for your time and sharing your perspective there from the key. Uh, Michael Davey is the mayor of Key Biscayne. Thanks so much, sir. Thank you. Still, have a great day. You too. It's still to come. The hurricane season beginning with South Florida under a tropical storm warning already. And later on, a big deal breaking on this Friday in Spanish language broadcasting here in Miami and politics is in play. We'll talk about it both next. back on the South Florida Roundup here on WLRN. I'm Tom Hudson. Thanks again for listening. The prediction was for this storm season to be another busy one in the subtropics. Well, the season is only a few days old and already South Florida finds itself parts of it under a tropical storm warning. The first tropical weather of the hurricane season is not coming from the Atlantic, though. It slid across Mexico from the Pacific into the Gulf of Mexico and is bringing rains, the threat of flash floods and some strong wind gusts for us this weekend. So are you prepared for storm season, another one during a pandemic? What questions do you have about the conditions this season fueling what's expected to be another active year for storms? 800-743-WLRN is our phone number, 800-743-9576. Jeff George is the chief meteorologist at the Florida Public Radio Emergency Network and joins us from headquarters in Gainesville. Jeff, welcome to the program. Thanks for the time today. Thank you, Tom. Uh, it's great being here. How you doing? I'm doing well. You picked a heck of a week to start your job as chief <laughs> meteorologist of the Florida Public Radio Emergency <laughs> Network. You got great timing, Jeff. Let's t- speak about timing in this latest potential tropical cyclone one. Is it? Uh, do you think it's going to get a name before too long? Yeah, we, we sure do, Tom. There's been a delay in naming it, mainly because the bulk of the precipitation is detached from the storm itself, from the center of the storm. And that's giving the uh, National Hurricane Center a little hesitancy um, as far as naming it. But uh, it, we would expect it to be named between now and sometime this evening. But then again, we kind of expected that yesterday, too. Yeah, yeah indeed. <laughs> right. Well, talk up to us in terms of South Florida about the timing of the heaviest rains. Yes, the timing of the heaviest rains looks like to move into South Florida sometime between midnight and about 2 or 3 o'clock in the morning. That's on the east side. Mm-hmm. And then in the Miami area, for instance, uh, looks like the rain will really start to come down. I'm sorry, it's been coming down pretty much all day. Yeah. But it looks like the really heavy stuff and the peak of the storm will be sometime between midnight and about noon tomorrow. And is that the peak risk then for the possibility of tornadoes forming? Yes, sir. Yes. So I would say as far as that's concerned, we have to wait for the storm, the center of the circulation to get a little bit closer to the coast. And when that happens, sometimes right around uh, right around sunrise tomorrow morning, mm-hmm. that's when it looks like the tornado threat will be the greatest. Okay. Let's say sunrise until about lunchtime or noon tomorrow. And what kind of rainfall amounts are we expecting uh, to be accumulated? 
Oh boy, I was almost hoping you wouldn't ask me that. <laughs> that's so. that's the big question. I waited, Jeff, but that's the big one. Right? <laughs> Thank you, Tom. Yeah, and that happens to be the biggest hazard of this yeah. storm because, as far as winds, sustained winds and gusts, we're looking at thirty to maybe forty-five miles an hour. But as far as the rain is concerned, on the average, from central to southern Florida, about four to ten inches, mm. and there'll be some local spots that may get over ten inches of rain. And, and uh, that, that's the kind of total accumulation. But, you know, how concentrated could that be in, in you know, uh, how many minutes or how many hours do you think? Right. So let's say from peak intensity of the storm from midnight tonight until about noon tomorrow, okay. um, that's when the bulk of the precipitation will come down. So whatever is out there right now, whatever rain has accumulated, of course, the water will get higher and yep. higher, and it's going to get much more dangerous as the evening and as the night goes along. Absolutely. We're getting more and more saturated, and uh, the bulk of the heavy weather has yet to hit us here. Uh, WLRN's environmental re- reporter Jenny Stiletovich is a hurricane storm veteran here. She's with us as well, Jeff. Uh, Jenny, take a step back here. What is this storm season? Uh, it's predicted to be another more active than average. What what does that mean? Especially as already we've got this this uh, you know storm watches and warnings just three days into the season. Right. So we are predicted to get between fourteen and twenty one named storms, and we fall at the low end fourteen. That would be an average season, but they're calling for. you know, greater odds for a a busier season, which would make it the seventh in a row. We've just had this phenomenal string of of really busy hurricane seasons. And so what's what are the meteorological ingredients, Jenny, that that are contributing to the active forecast this year and the previous six years that were all above average? Well, this year, what's different is we have a La Nina that's expected to continue into hurricane season. Um, that means we won't have those kind of strong upper atmospheric winds that can can shear off a hurricane and, and, and weaken it. So that's a big factor. They're calling for a busy monsoon season off the west coast of Africa. Also, uh, ocean temperature, surf, surface temperatures are higher than usual. And you know, all that hot water at the top is what fuels the storms. And then another thing to look out for this year is the um, loop current in the Gulf of Mexico uh, is setting up to look like it did in 2005 when we had those string of awful storms. Oh, Jenny, you had to mention 2005, <laughs> right? Uh, I, I was, I, yeah, I mean, it is it is a benchmark uh, and an awful one for a good number of people. What are the similarities in that loop current and how does that uh, how does that interact with with the storm? Right, so the loop current carries uh, warm, deeper water further into the Gulf, and it, it flows up and around the Gulf um, through the from the Caribbean, and so that water runs or warm water runs deeper. So that means when a hurricane crosses over it, it's got a deeper reservoir. Of- a fuel essentially as the current winds up and turns in the gulf it can spin off these eddies um nick shea is a university of miami uh current guy who's been studying it for 30 years and he says these eddies move very slowly um they kind of meander across the gulf at like a couple of miles an hour so even if the current shifts there can be these eddies and and if hurricanes pass over them again that's just a reservoir of, of fuel and he thinks that's what happened with Michael. A hurricane can mm. rapidly intensify when it when it crosses over these, you know, again, big supplies of fuel. Jeff George, uh, the chief meteorologist with Florida Public Radio Emergency Network, uh, I want to bring it back to this potential tropical cyclone one, the, the soon to be named potentially a- Alex, I believe, will be the name of this first one here. 
Um, uh, a couple of things at play that Jenny mentioned, the loop current in the Gulf of Mexico, is that at play uh, at all? The speed of the storm seems to be pretty slow, six, seven, eight miles an hour, and that normally would concern us because that would allow it to, to strengthen. Yes, Tom, you're exactly right. That would allow it to strengthen. And actually, it's, it's more expected to strengthen once it hits the uh, Gulf Stream. When it moves off the East Coast and uh, and it heads out into the open waters in this case, because, as you know, every storm is different. Yeah. This is an early season storm and they all have a mind of their own. So we're going with what the models are telling us and what the National Hurricane Center is telling us and the forecast models and everything. And we feel pretty comfortable about the timing. So I think the other uh, main question and what's on people's minds is like, OK, so we, now we know when it's going to start when it's going to peak. So when's it going to end? You know, when can we see, uh, you know, everything start to taper off? And I think along the West Coast, uh, I'd say between nine o'clock tomorrow morning and noon, you'll see things taper off quite significantly. And Miami, East Coast, uh, sometime between two o'clock in the afternoon and maybe 530 or six, you'll start to see a noticeable decrease in the winds and the rain. All right. Uh, the chief meteorologist at Florida Public Radio Emergency Network, Jeff George, with us with the latest on potential tropical cyclone one. We'll have uh, more information during All Things Considered here on WLRN. And WLRN's environmental reporter, Jenny Stiletovich, talking about the, how the season is setting up here for the six months ahead. Uh, Jenny and Jeff, thanks so much for sharing your expertise with us. Much appreciated. Thank you, Tom. Thanks, Tom. Have a good one. You as well, and a safe one at that. Finally, in the roundup this week, big story breaking on this Friday, a uh, big deal in radio that may reshape some of the sound of Spanish language broadcasting here in South Florida and politics is in play. WLRN America's editor Tim Paget is on this story. Uh, Tim, share with us what what's what's at stake in this deal. What are some of the details of the deal here? Well, as you mentioned, it's not just media, it's also politics, because we're talking about Spanish language radio, which particularly here in Miami in recent years has been accused of being quite a source of right wing disinformation. Uh, in, in that market. And today, a newly formed and Latino-led media group called the Latino Media Network um, announced that it has uh, agreed with Univision he here mm -hmm. to uh, buy 18 of its Spanish language radio stations, including one of the, the biggest here in Miami, Radio Mambi. And uh, what do we know about this new ownership group? Uh, who's involved and where's the money coming from? Well, it's, it's, it, it, it's a bipartisan group. It has both Republicans and Democrats, but the, the Democrats seem to be the leading figures in it. Uh, the, the, the two uh, more uh, leading in, uh, owners of, of the group are Stephanie Valencia, who is a former White House aide on Latino affairs to President Barack Obama, and Jessica Morales, who is a Democratic activist, but it also includes uh, figures like Al Cardenas, the former Republican mm -hmm. chair here in Florida. And they purchased these 18 stations from Univision, Televisa Univision, I should say, uh, for $60 million. And a, a good bit of the financing comes from a uh, Lake Star Finance, which is affiliated with George Soros, uh, the businessman philanthropist, uh, who's obviously uh, become sort of a lightning rod yeah. for, for uh, in, in, in U.S. politics. Yeah, so uh, politics is in play here. The uh, Radio Mambi has been a 
a, a source of uh, conservative voice in uh, in politics, uh, certainly in uh, Latin American affairs as it relates to the exile population and others here. So, right. uh, you know, what describe to us kind of how this uh, what you've been able to learn about how this came together and kind of what this potentially could mean for the voice of of uh, uh, Latino conservative politics. Well, I think this all came together as the result of the fact that, as I mentioned, in recent years, Democrats, particularly Latino Democrats, have been spending millions of dollars watchdogging, monitoring Spanish language radio uh, and complaining about the often right wing disinformation that comes out, calling Joe Biden a socialist who was going to turn the United States into Venezuela and Cuba, for example, back in the 2020 election. They finally decided, I think, to shift those watchdog resources into actually owning the Spanish language radio stations that they have complained about uh, for so long. And now I think what we're going to see, particularly at stations like Mom B, is obviously a more moderate, if not a more maybe left leaning or liberal leaning uh, programming agenda. But I, I, I think if they were smart, they would they would go mainstream and, and, and go a more moderate course. Has the new ownership group talked at all about programming plans? No. In fact, uh, this is all pending FCC approval. Mm-hmm. And they mentioned to me this morning that they really don't see themselves in place uh, with programming until well into, into the ne- next year. One other piece of just timing here, coincidence, but uh, it, it was just, what, a matter of a few weeks ago, the Biden administration announced some easing of its uh, reproach to Cuba, for instance, and that was seen through the lens of the Biden administration perhaps uh, kind of giving up on appealing to uh, Cuban-American voters in Dade County specifically. I think, again, and that's why there is just as much political as there is media urgency to this. I think a lot of Democrats, Democratic activists, particularly in Latino community, are worried that the the Democratic hierarchy has Mm. given up on Florida as a, quote, red state. And particularly even in the Latino community here in South Florida. And I think that fear, that that urgency is what drove a lot of the creation of this new Latino media network to go in and start buying up some of the media outlets that they feel is responsible for that big shift to the right in the Latino community in places like Florida that have been such a, you know, a, a trouble for uh, for the National Democrats. You can uh, read more of Tim's reporting on WLRN.org about this new bipartisan Latino media group buying up some major Spanish language radio stations across the country, including um, uh, Radio Mambi here in Miami. You can also see it on WLRN social media feed at WLRN Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Tim, thanks for sharing the reporting. Thanks, Tom. That'll do it here for the South Florida Roundup this week. It is produced by Natu Tway. Our engagement editor is Katie Cohn. News director Terrence Shepard, Alicia Zuckerman, our editorial director. Jessica Bakeman is the senior editor of news. The director of radio operations is Peter Maris. The program's technical supervisor today, Richard Ives. Elia Rodriguez answers the phones. You can always catch a podcast of this program and previous programs by searching South Florida Roundup on your favorite podcast app. I'm Tom Hudson. Thanks for calling, listening, and above all, supporting public broadcasting here in South Florida. Couldn't do it without you. Have a great weekend. Be safe, stay dry, and also continue to monitor the storm as we'll have the latest details here throughout the day on WLRN. Program made possible by Willie the Bee Man, Bee Removal Specialist. WLRN Public Media.